Chapter One of Taken at the Flood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Celine Major. Taken at the Flood by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. One father and daughter deep in the green heart of one of the most pastoral shires in england nestled the village of headingham it was a hilly country and headingham lay at the bottom of an irregular basin nor in all the parish could you have found a half a dozen acres of level ground orchards and the headingham orchards were many and glorious gardens meadows patches of common land were all hill and hollow as if a storm-tossed ocean had suddenly been transformed into solid earth curious must have been those volcanic convulsions which resulted finally in headingham geologists had their various theories on the subject but the headingham people troubled themselves not at all thereupon so long as cherries and apples ripened in the orchard sloping to the southern sun or fronting the later glory of the west so long as all went well in farmyard and barn piggeries and hencoops headingham was content it was a prosperous-looking well-kept village important enough to blossom into a town perchance by and by under favouring circumstances sir aubrey perriam who owned the greater part of the land hereabouts was a rich man and if not a liberal landlord at least a strict one the plaster walls of all the headingham cottages were as white as frequent whitewash could make them the fences and gates of headingham knew not dilapidation in sir aubrey's absence and he was very often absent from the vast and gloomy pile which called him master his steward's keen eye overlooked headingham and seemed ubiquitous as the eye of providence itself nothing ever escaped that searching gaze and thus dirt and disorder seemed unknown at headingham there was no pleasanter spot than this village of headingham on a summer's day through the village street there ran a broad swift stream into whose clear current horses seemed glad to plunge their tired limbs and the very sight and sound of which refreshed the exhausted pedestrian one might write a chapter about the green lanes that surrounded headingham and the far-spreading curtain of shade afforded by fine old chestnuts and elms which gave a park-like aspect to the meadows hereabouts the headingham farmers having happily not yet been awakened to the necessity of stubbing up every decent tree on their land this green and fertile village was not far from the barren sea from the summit of yonder hill now golden with gorse and broom the eye might sweep across another fair valley to the wide expanse of ocean in this west of england the very seashore is verdant and the rich wealth of the land seems almost to run over into the water look at headingham this evening by the low light of the setting sun sinking gloriously behind that dense screen of yew and cypress on the western side of the churchyard the first scene of this drama opens in a garden only divided from the churchyard by a low stone wall and a thick hedge of neatly trimmed yew which rises tall and dark above the grey stone the garden of the village school mr carew the schoolmaster says it is a hard thing to live so near the churchyard and to look out of one's window the first thing every morning upon crumbling old headstones skulls and crossbones but then mr carew is a gentleman not prone to take life pleasantly a painter could hardly imagine anything more picturesque than that old norman church to whose massive walls and stout square tower time has given such rich variety of hue that spacious churchyard with its different levels 
its sombre old trees and its crumbling mausoleums through whose loosened stonework the sinuous ivy creeps at will a green living thing pushing its fresh growth into the secret chambers of decay james carew has no eye for the picturesque or it may be that though the picture is fair to look upon he may have had just a little too much of it for fifteen years he has been schoolmaster at Hedingham. he has seen the boys he taught when he first assumed that office grow into men and marry and rear sons of their own for him to teach he is grinding the elements of knowledge into a second generation and in all those fifteen years his own life has grown no whit brighter the passage of time has not profited him so much as an increase of five pounds a year to his scanty wage long service counts for very little with the authorities of Hedingham. indeed there are some who grudge james carew his meagre stipend and begin to wonder whether the parish schoolmaster is not getting past his work still there has been one change in those fifteen years a change which would have brightened life for some men although james carew has been indifferent to it his only daughter his only child indeed has grown from a child to a woman she was a plump fair-haired lassie of five years old when he brought her to this quiet home she is now a woman and the acknowledged beauty of Hedingham. she might reign by the same right divine in a much larger place than Hedingham for it would be hard to find rarer beauty than that of sylvia carew she stands by the rustic garden gate in the sunset talking to her father dressed in a well-washed lavender muslin and a plain black straw hat peerlessly beautiful perhaps the greatest attraction of her beauty lies in its rarity she follows no common type of loveliness her placid beauty recalls the form and colouring of an old venetian picture the features are classic in their delicate regularity the nose straight and finely chiselled the upper lip short the mouth a cupid's bow but the lips somewhat the veriest trifle thinner than they should be for perfection the chin short round and dimpled the forehead low and broad the shape of the face an oval the colouring is more striking sylvia is exquisitely fair that alabaster fairness with no more bloom than the heart of a blush rose which is in itself almost sufficient for beauty but this complexion which by itself might be an insipid loveliness is relieved by eyes of darkest deepest hazel the liquid brown which the venetian masters knew so well how to paint eyes of surpassing softness of incomparable beauty her hair is of a much paler shade yet a shade of the same colour but here the rich warm brown has a tinge of reddish gold and female critics aver that sylvia has red hair they do not deny her beauty that is beyond criticism they merely allege the fact sylvia's hair is red miss carew is pleasant and soft-spoken enough says miss bordock the baker's daughter but i never did trust no one with red hair they're most always double-faced whether sylvia was double-faced or not time must show her father stood beside her at the wooden gate a newspaper in his hand there was little resemblance between them and one could see that if sylvia inherited her beauty from any mortal progenitor it must have been to the maternal line she was indebted mr carew had a hooked nose a somewhat receding chin and faded grey eyes which may have once been blue and bright he had a worn look as of premature age and one could imagine him the ill-preserved ruin of a good-looking man his dress was slovenly but the white hand and taper fingers the small foot the general air and bearing were those of a man who whatever he might be now 
had once written himself down gentleman where are you going child he asked in a tone that was almost a complaint it's strange that you must be always gadding just at the time that i am at leisure you don't seem to care particularly about my company papa if i do stay at home replied sylvia coolly they were not a very affectionate father and daughter and it's dull indoors on such an evening as this one might as well be in that ivy-grown old tomb of the debossonies yonder and one's life over and done with you might read the newspaper to me at least and spare my poor old eyes a little they're tried hard enough all day other people are almost young at fifty papa why is it that you seem so old asked the girl in a speculative tone as if she were considering a fact in natural history compare my life for the last fifteen years with the lives of other people and you won't be so foolish as to repeat your question sylvia i should feel young enough and seem young enough too i dare say if i were as rich as sir aubrey Perriam. the father sighed and the daughter echoed his sigh as if the very mention of the lord of the soil were provocative of melancholy thought yes it must be a grand thing to be rich said sylvia especially for people who have had some experience of poverty those people who are born rich seem to have a very dim idea of the enjoyment they might get out of their money they dawdle through life in a sleepy sort of way and fritter away their wealth upon a herd of servants and on some great ugly house in which they are little more than a cipher now if i were rich the world would hardly be big enough for me i'd roam from country to country i'd climb mountains that no one ever climbed before i'd make my name famous in half a dozen different ways i'd breaking down with a sudden sigh but i dare say i never shall be anything but a village schoolmaster's daughter or a village schoolmistress so it's worse than foolish to talk of happiness or riches the hazel eyes had brightened while she talked of what she would do with wealth they were clouded now and she looked at the rosy light beyond that dark screen of cypress with a face that was full of gloomy thought strangely beautiful even in its gloom though with a sinister beauty you need not be a village schoolmistress unless you are a greater simpleton than i take you to be said her father who had been in no manner disturbed by her rhapsody he had unfolded his newspaper while she was speaking a london paper which reached this remote world at sunset with your good looks you are bound to make a good marriage what at headingham cried sylvia with a scornful laugh pray who is the wandering prince who is to find me at headingham i'm afraid princes of that kind only exist in fairy tales nonsense sylvia every pretty woman has her chance if she has but patience to wait for it but ten out of every dozen wreck themselves by marrying scamps or paupers before they are out of their teens i hope you sylvia have too much sense to make that kind of mistake i hope so said sylvia indeed i mean to be prudence itself and wait for the prince have i not drained the cup of poverty to the very dregs believe me papa i don't want to wear washed-out gowns and last summer's bonnets quite all my life she looked down at her faded muslin contemptuously as she spoke she had all the feminine longing for bright colours and fashionably made dresses though the finest shops she knew were those in monkhampton the neighbouring market-town and the best-dressed women she had ever seen were the miss toynbees 
the retired woollen manufacturer's daughters who it was faintly rumoured had once had dresses straight from paris by the way she resumed presently after a pause talking of good marriages i wonder if you would call mr standen a good match for any one i am not speaking of myself of course i'm glad you're not retorted her father sharply but without lifting his eyes from the newspaper for edmund standen would be a very bad match for you his father the banker left every acre and every sixpence he had to leave to his widow for her to dispose of as she thinks best and her son is entirely at her mercy he's an only son you'll say and to whom else could she leave her money she might leave it to her married daughter mrs sargent and depend upon it she will leave it to the daughter if the son offends her by a foolish marriage for instance by marrying any one she disapproves of and she's a starched madam and will be uncommonly hard to please i dare say she means him for that little girl who lives with her miss miss rochdale sylvia shrugged her shoulders and made a wry face as if miss rochdale were a very inferior order of being i shouldn't think he would ever marry her she said even to please his mother whom i believe he worships in the first place her name is esther fancy any one falling in love with an esther and in the next place she's dowdy to a degree that is next door to ugliness i've never taken particular notice of her replied mr carew but i believe she has money her father was in the indian civil service a judge or something of that kind she was born in bengal and sent over to the standons when she was three or four years old the mother was some relation of mrs standons i think and after toiling and money scraping out in calcutta for twenty years mr rochdale died on the eve of his return the common close of an indian career leaving his daughter well provided for i wish you had gone to india papa to die there thanks for so affectionate a wish no no of course i don't mean that answered the girl somewhat lightly as if it were a matter of detail but i do wish you had found some position more fitted to your talents for i know you are very clever even at the other end of the world so many men strike out paths for themselves begin life with so few chances and end in the loftiest stations i have read the biographies of such men and never without wondering how you could tamely submit to endure the life you have led here to waste your keen intellect in the drudgery of a village school for fifteen long useless years she spoke with a suppressed passion in her tone for there were times when she felt undutifully angry at the thought of her father's ignominious career not so easily would she have submitted to a life of obscurity had heaven made her a man the men you read of may have started in life with one qualification which i did not possess when i began my career in this place said her father coldly still without looking from the newspaper what qualification she asked eagerly never mind what enough that i am what i am why seek to pry into the secrets of a life that holds no ray of hope you say you know that i have talents if you do know that you must know that i should not have endured such a life as this could i have put those talents to better use i did not begin the world as a village schoolmaster the life you have seen is only the miserable remnant of an earlier existence and that was a little brighter was it not papa yes child 
that was pleasant enough while it lasted and what was the misfortune which altered your circumstances you have asked me that question before to-day sylvia and i have told you that the past is a subject i do not wish to talk about be kind enough to remember that in future the girl gave a discontented sigh but said nothing you have not answered my question said her father where are you going only for a walk in the lanes with alice cook and mary peter i wonder you can care about associating with a sexton's daughter and a dressmaker have i anybody else to associate with papa what would the young ladies of headingham think if i aspired to their company why i dare say they expect me to drop a curtsey when i meet them like the school children she drew herself up to her fullest height and looked like an outraged queen at the very idea of these people's insolence then in a more indifferent tone she went on you don't suppose i care for alice or mary but they're better than nobody and they think a great deal of me what is it that you told me caesar said better to reign in a village than serve in rome i'd rather have such friends as those who look up to me than be asked to tea in a patronizing way by the vicar's daughters who din the school into my ears all the evening mary tells me about the fashions and helps me a little when i have a new dress to make for myself it isn't often i trouble her and alice is a harmless creature enough and takes no liberties besides i could hardly walk about alone no said her father with a glance at the fair face that wouldn't do perhaps you're right better to have them than no one be sure you're not late i'll take care papa we're going to talk over the arrangements for to-morrow for to-morrow the school treat papa you haven't forgotten surely to be sure yes the children's tea and the fancy fair in harper's field the place will be in a fine hubbub i suppose we're to have the band from monkhampton and they say there are lots of people coming county people added the girl we don't often have a glimpse of the world at headingham and then with a profound sigh i dare say the dresses will be lovely and think of my poor last year's muslin which has grown ever so much too short for me you've grown i suppose you mean said her father you needn't be so doleful about it new dresses don't make good looks and no man whose opinion is worth having values a woman for her gown it's only you women who appraise one another's clothes and sit in judgment upon one another's bonnets yes papa but it's hard to bear scornful looks and to feel the stamp of poverty branded on one's back i'm sure i wouldn't mind how i pinched or scraped indoors i'd eat dry bread and drink water if i could only make a decent appearance before the world ah that's a woman's notion of comfort said mr carew contemptuously he was particular about what he ate his comfortable little six o'clock dinner was the one bright spot in his day the babble and turmoil of the school were over the door shut upon those awful boys whom he loathed with an unspeakable loathing the table laid neatly in the shady parlour a cutlet or a chicken a little dish of fruit a salad and a tumbler of cheap claret sufficed him but even this modest menu cost money which might have been spared for sylvia's wardrobe had the schoolmaster been content to eat boiled bacon and beans like his neighbours two shrill voices sounded in the still air and two girls emerged from the shadows of the cypress and yew and came by the narrow churchyard path towards the gate of mr carew's garden two commonplace-looking damsels enough it must be confessed 
but fresh-complexioned and frank-looking and with a pleasant air of the country about them well sylvia cried mary peter the elder of the two have you been waiting for us not very long besides i've been talking to papa it didn't matter i had the dresses to finish for the miss toynbees i wish i could have kept them up at my place to show you but the lady's maid did fidget so she's been round three times since dinner so i sent em as soon as ever i'd set the last stitch and all i hope is the boy won't tumble them such loves of dresses sylvia however you'll see them to-morrow so it's all the same clear white grenadine with blue satin quillings and blue silk slips and such lace real valenciennes and seven shillings a yard if it was a penny the maid seemed afraid i should eat some of it she was so sharp i dare say she'll go over every inch with a yard measure mr carew had retreated before this babble about dressmaking he had not even troubled himself to respond to the timid salutations of the two damsels but for similar discourtesy Eddingham had long ago set him down as a proud and unfriendly individual a good master enough for those rude rough boys who trembled at his frown but a person whose acquaintance nobody cared to cultivate yet they owned that although unpolite he had the air and bearing of a gentleman and that his discourtesy seemed sometimes sheer absence of mind he had seen better days said the Heddinghamites, and his temper had been soured by reverse of fortune having come to this conclusion his simple-minded neighbours pitied him and showed what kindness they could to his pretty daughter come sylvia said alice cook it will be dark before we've had our walk End of chapter one